0: Greetings in Christ um, from the University Christian Fellowship staff and students in the East Bay and the Congregation of Eucharist Church in San Francisco. Uh, my name is Elliot Hot, and it's a joy to be here today. It really is. Um, thank you for welcoming me. Uh, like John said, Father John said, I'm on staff with University in the East Bay, uh, and I, uh, with my family, attend Eucharist Church in San Francisco, which is where I met John and Vicki uh, about four years ago, right as they were being sent out to start um, Holy Trinity. So it's great to see this place in action. We've been hearing about it and praying for them for many years, and here you are. <laughs> A little bit about me. Um, I live in Oakland with my wife, Katie. She's back here, and our four girls. Uh, Flannery, Phoebe, Junia, and Lucy. Um, we are bringing the uh, youth program to you today. Uh, and yes, just as you guess, just as you guess, we live and move and have our being in a world of feelings, dress-up costumes, art projects, dancing and talking. There's so much talking in our family. And I absolutely love it all. It's a great gig. Uh, personally, I'm an avid reader, uh, an ardent lap swimmer, an aspiring, though bumbling, urban gardener, and a stoked yet thoroughly mediocre surfer. I've been on our staff for eight years uh, after first attending Westmont College and then Duke Divinity School. The scene that opens today's Old Testament reading from Isaiah is almost beyond idyllic. I will sing for my beloved my song, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed a wine gap in it. This is the stuff of movies and postcards and dare I say, even Instagram. But then things quickly start to go off the rails. He expected it to yield grapes, but it yielded rotten grapes. And now I tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge. And it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a wasteland. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and shall it and it shall be overgrown with briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. That's quite a pivot from our start. And I'm sure you heard it as it was read a few minutes ago, but our gospel reading today from Matthew follows a similar pattern. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, took a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenants and went away. Okay, so we're off to a good start, right? Sounds like a good business decision. Things are going smoothly. Wrong. When the harvest time had come, he sent his slaves to the tenants to collect his produce. But the tenants seized his slaves and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Then he sent other slaves, more than the first, and they treated them in the same way. And they sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him and get his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. What is going on here? Why do these two readings start so incredibly well and then end so horribly wrong? And what does it all mean for us today? Let's start by noting that our Isaiah reading is the subtext of our Matthew reading. You probably guessed that already. Jews hearing the letter, the, uh, the, the Matthew reading, in real time would have inst- instantly thought of the former. The Isaiah reading uses imagery common throughout the Old Testament. Israel is God's vineyard, planted, owned, nourished by him. And yet also, at times, fickle, unruly, unfaithful, and even downright idolatrous so much so that it often leads to its own near destruction. In our Isaiah reading, Israel alone is to blame for this bad outcome. It's on Israel. In the second reading, our reading from Matthew, however, those responsible for Israel's bad outcome are this time, instead, its leaders. Sometimes called the chief priests and the Pharisees, or the Jewish authorities, or the Jerusalem leadership, depending on kind of who you're reading and how you're interpreting things. These were the people responsible for leading God's people into worship and for keeping them in step with the covenantal rules and regulations required of them by God. These people had a critical role to play as custodians and keepers of God's people, and yet they were failing miserably. Jesus ends his parable by pulling no punches when it comes to criticizing them. Now when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to the tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the produce of the harvest. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is amazing in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produces its fruits. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. In this parable, the tenets are a metaphor for the religious leaders who serve their own interests rather than yielding to God's appointed heir. Instead of receiving Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah, giving up their power and ceding to his rightful rule as Lord of all, these leaders will eventually execute him to protect themselves and to maintain the status quo. As the cornerstone of the new temple, Jesus poses a threat to the builders and keepers of the old temple. We might also say that these two kingdoms, that of Jesus and that of the religious leaders, are on quite the collision course. One commentator has written this about the parable, and I love this quote. Fecundity, obedience to God, is the outworking of faithful dispositions. And this, not one's birthright, nor religious just training, nor relation to the administration of temple affairs, This qualifies one as a member of the people of God. Fecundity, obedience to God, is the outworking of faithful dispositions. And this, not one's birthright, nor religious training, nor relation to the administration of temple affairs, this qualifies one as a member of the people of God. In Jesus, God was remaking the nature and identity of God's people and initiating a new kingdom. A new community of his people was being birthed in which Jews and Gentiles would find their place alongside one another in God's new family. To be clear, this wasn't a replacement of Israel with another group, that's not what God is doing here. Some people have read this into this passage historically, and it's not that. But a total, what we're seeing here is a total reconstitution of the people of God. And what would characterize these people wasn't their nationality. Wasn't their ethnicity and wasn't their connection to the temple in terms of its leader and powers, leaders and power, but what would characterize them is that they would produce fruit. This calls to mind the words of Jesus nine chapters earlier in that Someone told him, Look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside and wanting to speak to you. But to the one who had told him this, Jesus replied, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus is reconstituting the people of God. In Jesus, God was not only remaking the nature and identity of God's people, but he was also remaking the nature and identity of those who would lead God's people in this new kingdom. A divine reversal was in the works the one rejected by Israel's leaders was to be elevated to the place of highest honor. The creator of all things, not the custodians of created things, was to be the true and rightful ruler. The creator of all things, not the custodians of created things, was to be the true and rightful ruler. In the words of the Apostle Paul to the church in Colossae, he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth are created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in heaven. Instead of standing down and bowing low to this cosmic Lord, the chief priests and the Pharisees, the Jewish authorities, the Jewish leadership, whoever you want to call them, in their blindness and heart-heartedness, they dug in their heels and refused to budge, grasping for power and control at every turn. This, as we've seen, receives a stern rebuke from Jesus, who draws on imagery from Psalm 118 to make his point. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone he then continues on the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone on whom it falls the use of psalm 118 here is not uh, is is not accidental it's very intentional as i often tell my students there aren't any throwaway lines in the bible <laughs> Scholars suggest that this psalm may have been used as an entrance liturgy to the temple or an enthronement psalm when David or other kings assumed power of Israel. So what's the message for this? What's the message with Psalm 118? Jesus has come to claim his throne. But similar to his humble birth, he's doing things here in unexpected ways and fully on his own terms. And not everyone will understand this Not everyone will like it, even to their own detriment. It's been said that ordinary time, the greediness around us, is a season to refocus on Jesus and his kingdom with the goal of seeing both both more clearly so we can better orient our daily lives around them. Focusing on Jesus and his kingdom. And I think that's a helpful lens as we consider what these passages, these complex. And kind of violent passages might mean for us today. As we've seen, our gospel reading in Matthew paints a picture of Jesus and his kingdom in a fresh and arresting light. We don't normally talk about Jesus and his kingdom in these ways. So we're grateful for the liturgy for forcing us to talk about them here today. Let's start with Jesus. Many of us modern Western Christians like to think of Jesus more or less as a flexible and adaptable guy. Who is welcoming and inclusive of all people? Of course, he probably was some of those things. But that's not the vibe we're getting here. Here, he's the rightful ruler who has come to lead God's people into a new season and to call out those who are standing in his way. There's obviously more to Jesus than we see in this brief passage, of course. But where have we settled for understandings of Jesus that are too small, too sanitized? Too trendy, or even too like ourselves? And how might we be selling our call to bear faithful witness short by settling for these lesser understandings of Jesus? On to the kingdom. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produces its fruits. How are our vineyards doing? How is the vineyard of Holy Trinity? How is the vineyard of Eucharist Church or Inter-Varsity Christian Fellowship? Are we, again, us modern Western Christians, are we producing the fruit that Jesus envisions here? Are our fecundity and our obedience not only up to par, but God-honoring and worthy of kingdom leadership? This is an especially poignant word for those of us who lead churches and Parachurch ministries And in so doing Act as leaders Of God's people today Where are we In our insecurities Grasping for control Of our people Instead of handing it over Willingly to our risen And living Lord Where are we In our blindness Digging in our heels Instead of moving Out of the way Of this falling stone I don't have all the answers To these questions You don't have time To even attempt that tonight and I'm not sure anyone has the answers, or if that's the point. But I'm grateful for these readings, for raising them, these questions, for raising them, and for the time and space that we have in ordinary time to take them up in community. As we slowly inch toward Advent, and I know it doesn't feel like Advent on this nice, warm Sunday afternoon. As we slowly inch towards Advent, may we see Jesus and his kingdom more clearly. And may we have courage truly live according